Welcome to Tom's SciCast, and I'm your host, Tom Kennedy. Now today, I want to talk about a couple different topics that might not seem related, but they really are. These are the hierarchy of life, you know, going from atoms all the way up to the biosphere, emergent properties, and life itself. I know, that's some really broad topics, aren't they? But they are connected to each other. And let me explain how. I'll start with life's hierarchy, or there's a hierarchy to life, and it begins with these basic fundamental building blocks of nature. You know, protons, neutrons, and electrons. And this hierarchy increases in complexity from atoms and molecules to cells to a living organism right up to the biosphere. Now our next topic is emergent properties. And emergent properties are important because as we go up in complexity in life's hierarchy, we have these new properties that begin to emerge, hence emergent properties, that are greater than the sum of their parts. And many times, they're completely unpredictable. Some emergent properties are impossible to predict, no matter how much you know about the building blocks. And then my third topic here is, what does it mean to be alive? What is something living? Now, most of us can clearly tell when something's alive or not, or at least most of the time, right? I mean, there's some crazy looking fungus out there that grow so slowly that you might just pass them over as a rock or something. But in general, we can identify something as alive. We can separate it out from a rock. And the important difference between you and a rock, or me and a rock, is that we're living. There's something different about a living system, and a life is really the result of an emergent property based on life's hierarchy. Isn't that cool? Years ago, when I first started teaching some of these classes on introductory to biology, these textbooks always had this kind of throwaway page. It was, it was literally a page of life's hierarchy, and it was really just a few paragraphs and a big picture showing the hierarchy of life. And then they talked about emergent properties, but they never really made that connection between life's hierarchy, emergent properties, and that life is the result of emergent properties. So that's what I want to talk about today. And I'm going to start with life's hierarchy. And as we talk about life's hierarchy, I'm going to embed emergent properties into it, and then we're going to get to life. And that's where it's really fun for me. If we look at the universe at its most basic level, there are these fundamental particles of nature. Now, if you're into quantum mechanics, which is a branch of physics that studies things at the tiny scales of atoms, you know that there are these fundamental particles, things like electrons and quarks with their quirky names like top, bottom, up, down, strange, and charmed. Oh yeah, those are actual names of quarks. And those quarks come together to form baryonic particles. Oh, I know you've probably never heard of that, but think protons and neutrons. Now, for those of us that are interested in chemistry and biology, we're not too worried about quarks. And in fact, I'm not going to really talk about them here. So for us, the basic fundamental building blocks of all matter in the universe are protons, neutrons, and electrons. And these particles are ancient. They have been around since the start of the universe 13.8 billion years ago. They've been floating through space. They've been inside of stars. They've been inside of rocks. 
and now they are temporarily inside of you. That's pretty cool, isn't it? But these three subatomic particles, protons with their positive charge, neutrons with their neutral charge, and electrons with their negative charge make up atoms. Protons and neutrons are found inside the nucleus of an atom, and outside the nucleus are a cloud of electrons occupying electron shells. And it gets a little bit more complicated than that, but we'll just stop there. Now these three subatomic particles, as you know, they form atoms. And specifically, they form elements based on the number of protons inside the nucleus. So there are 92 naturally occurring elements. 91 for all you chemistry buff. I know technetium does not really occur in nature. But there are these 92 naturally occurring elements. And each of those elements has different chemical properties. Are they a metal? Are they a gas? Are they a solid? Are they a non-metal? So take, for example, oxygen. Oxygen has eight protons. Most of them have eight neutrons. And they have eight electrons. Oxygen is a gas. At room temperature, anyways. I mean, you can get cold enough and oxygen will, will liquefy. But you get the point. You take another element, carbon. Six protons, six neutrons, six electrons. See element number six, atomic mass 12. It is a solid. And you're familiar with carbon. It could be like soot. It can also be like a diamond. Another element. Oh, let's take sodium. Sodium has 11 protons and 11 electrons. And I think it has 12 neutrons on average. And sodium is a metal that if you put it in water, it catches on fire. How weird is that? Whoever thought of anything catching on fire in water? Let's take another element, chlorine. Chlorine has 17 protons, 17 electrons, and most of them have 22 neutrons. I know I'm getting a little boring with this, but bear with me. Chlorine is a gas. And not only is it just a gas, it's a toxic gas. It will kill you. So as you can see, there are these 92 different elements, and they each have different properties. And those properties are based on the combinations of these three subatomic particles. So the properties of an element, is it a gas, a liquid, a metal, a non-metal? Those are emergent properties of protons, neutrons, and electrons. Now, of course, elements combine to form molecules. So you could take something like oxygen, which is a gas, and combine it with two hydrogens, which are also a gas, and guess what you get? Water, liquid water. You can take ethane, two carbons, six hydrogens. That's natural gas. If you are burning gas in your house, you are burning some ethane. Now, you add an oxygen to that ethane, and you have ethanol. And for those of you over 21, you might drink some ethanol on a Friday night in your tasty beverage. So the point here is that elements combine to form molecules, and there can be millions of different molecules in the universe. We don't know how many there are. Now, I'm sure in the next 10 years, somebody's going to come up with an AI algorithm, and they're going to answer that question of just how many molecules there can be, at least ones that are stable enough to last a minute or so. But the point is, these 92 different elements combine to form potentially millions of different types of molecules, and these molecules have different properties. Once again, we're seeing emergent properties. Now let's take a big leap. 
molecules come together to form cells. Now cells are one of the most unique structures on the planet because a cell is where life emerges. Cells are the basic unit of life. And in fact, that cell theory that we say that cells are the basic unit of life. And in fact, all life is made up of cells. And in today's world, all cells come from pre-existing cells. Now, of course, that didn't occur at the beginning of life on this planet over 3.8 billion years ago. But ever since life got started, all cells come from pre-existing cells. So cells are important, right? I mean, this is the basic unit of life. And it's a basic unit of life because it is the smallest system where all these properties of life emerge. So let me be clear. Life is an emergent property resulting from a complex system. Now, the next question is, what does it mean to be living? I mean, we can spot the difference between a rock and a tree or a rock and something else that's non-living. So a lot of people have asked this question, you know, what is life? And in fact, I actually know of two books, both pretty popular, called What is Life? And both those books set out to identify what life is. So a lot of books, including most textbooks, have a definition of life as a set of characteristics. I remember finishing my PhD a few years ago and somebody said, hey, Tom, what are the seven characteristics of life? And I was like, oh, I should know this. And I'm like, life reproduces. Life uses energy. It moves. And they're like, hey, is that all you can do? Don't you have a PhD in biology? And uh, I was like, man, I, I should be able to come up with a good definition of life or list these characteristics of life that were in our introductory biology book, right? I mean, shouldn't I be able to do that at least? I should know something about biology. But that question got me thinking, you know, what exactly is life? And I tend to think of life as something very different than a set of five characteristics, although those characteristics are an important function of life. Here's the way I like to think about it. Don't ask, what is life? Ask, what does life do? And that is a subtle difference. Instead of going, what is life? Implying that life is like a noun, it's a person, place, or thing. By asking, what does life do? Life is a verb. Life is an action. Life does something. And it's a level of the cell that is doing something that is living. So what exactly does life do? First of all, we know that life is an emergent property of a complex system. But what does that mean? What is it doing? At its most basic, life is taking in energy from its environment and using that energy to create order at the level of a cell, which is the basic unit of life. Now, across the universe, there might be something that's not a cell and still alive that's using energy to create order. That's really important. Now, let's go on from there. Let's add some layers of complexity to life. If you've ever had a jar of peanut butter or a pizza, let's say you throw your pizza in the oven or you microwave your jar of peanut butter, you can microwave it or cook your pizza till the end of time, and you're never going to get something living out of it. And the reason why I'm using that example is that a jar of peanut butter has all the necessary ingredients of life. And if you zap it in a microwave, you're adding energy. But the point is, 
no matter how much energy you add to that peanut butter, nothing is ever going to crawl out of it, right? You just can't add energy to a system and expect to have life. No. If you're using energy from the environment, you need a set of chemical reactions that are creating order. That is metabolism. And metabolism is carried out by enzymes, usually protein enzymes. It doesn't have to be. It's a lot of times it's metals. And in fact, metals help make chemical reactions happen. And the protein enzymes, well, they house metals at their core. And the enzyme is just there to like make sure a specific type of chemical reaction happens. So we need metabolism, both catabolism, which is breaking things down, and anabolism, which is building things up. Now let's add another layer. Life uses energy to create order through metabolic reactions. And the information to carry out and control those metabolic reactions is stored in a information storing molecule. And then life on Earth, it's in our nucleic acids, and you know them as DNA and RNA. So DNA is a permanent storage of all of our genetic information that houses the information to build all the proteins and all the different enzymes necessary to carry out the metabolic reactions of life. Now, going back to when that friend of mine asked me about the characteristics of life, and the first thing I said is reproduction. A lot of biologists focus on reproduction for life, and why not? Without reproduction, without life's ability to reproduce, life would have emerged as some metabolically active rock billions of years ago, and then when that rock formation was gone, that life was gone too. So at some point, life had to be able to reproduce, and reproduction is basically copying that genetic information and creating a new organism with it. And of course, this leads to the next thing, the next process that life does. Life evolves over time. And the way life evolves is because, well, if you've ever copied information down, have you ever copied everything down correctly? I mean, how many times have you copied some information and got a number wrong, a letter wrong, or misspelled a word? Well, I know I've done it all the time, right? Our DNA, despite its amazing ability to self-correct itself, still makes mistakes every single time it's copied. And in fact, you have about a thousand mutations between you and your parents. So as life reproduces, there's errors in that DNA. There's errors in the genetic code. That creates variation amongst the population. And with variation among a population, you can have natural selection, you get evolution. So life evolves over time. Now we have a good idea of what life does. Life is a process. Life takes energy out of the environment, uses that energy to create order through metabolic reactions guided by our DNA. And life reproduces. Reproduction is where you copy down the genetic information and you make a new organism out of it. And every time you copy information, that's genetic information in this case, there are errors. And those errors, mutations, are the source of variation within populations. And then natural selection will act on that variation and the result is a population evolves over time. So life evolves and that's a consequence of life reproducing. And one more thing that all life must do. All life must interact with its environment to extract nutrients and energy from it. No living thing can be an island. You cut life off from energy and life dies. 
whenever I think about energy flowing through life, you know, I, I always think of Yoda from The Empire Strikes Back. He's telling Luke about the Force. And no, I'm not going to try to imitate how Yoda talks, but he's like, you must feel the Force. It flows through you. Well, if he was talking about energy, he's exactly right. Energy flows through life. And that's important. Without energy, there is no life. Without the basic building blocks of protons, neutrons, and electrons making elements, specifically carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and those combined to form molecules, there would be no life. So life needs the basic building blocks and energy. So by now you start to see this hierarchy of life and the importance of emergent properties as you increase in complexity. Because at the level of a cell, you get energy interacting with a bunch of molecules in a very coordinated way, and you get a living system. So a living system is an emergent property. Life is an emergent property. That's really cool. Now let's continue on with our hierarchy of life, and you'll see that emergent properties continue to arise at each new level of complexity. Let's take the next step up. Multicellular life, plants, animals, fungus, we are made of lots of cells. And in fact, a human is made up of over 200 different cell types. Think muscle cells, skin cells, nerve cells, on and on and on. There's like 200 different types. Now, each one of our 17 trillion cells contains the same genetic information, but these cells are differentiated and they carry out specific tasks within our bodies. So a multicellular organism, once again, is a conglomeration of many cells working together with lots of emergent properties. I'm greater than the sum of my parts. We can continue on. If you've got individuals, well, if you have lots of individuals, they form a population. So a population is a group of individuals of the same species living in the same area. There is an entire field of ecology or science called population ecology. And what they study are the factors that make populations grow or shrink. So they study birth rates, death rates, emigration, immigration, and all these factors that can change populations. In answering these questions, understanding what causes populations to fluctuate over time, to grow or to shrink is really important. You want to maintain fisheries? You need to know what's causing those fisheries to either shrink or increase. You want to maintain a deer herd? It's the same way. And then when it comes to humans, why do some countries have large population growth? Why are other countries actually shrinking in populations? So we study population ecology and demographics to understand that. You know, additional questions that a population ecologist might ask are, when's the age at first reproduction? How many individuals survive from one year to the next? And we generate survivorship curves based on that. Also, how many individuals are born each year? So all of these questions are important for a population ecology. Our next step up in the hierarchy of life are biological communities. Now, a biological community is made of all the living organisms interacting in a certain area. And communities could be the bacteria living on your teeth, in your mouth, in your gut. It could be a biological community in a nearby forest or a mountain range. It kind of really depends on the question you're asking. And community ecology, they want to know what determines the structure of that community? Who lives there and why? So community ecologists, they'll study 
the interactions among the different species living in that community. So you might study predation, competition, symbiosis. And believe it or not, it's not about everything going out and trying to either catch their prey or avoid being eaten. A lot of species are very dependent on symbiotic relationships. That is where species work together. Think about flowers and their pollinators. So that's kind of an important thing, right? Because that's a symbiotic relationship between the flowers and their pollinators, all these insects. And those are really important for our crops. You like to eat fruits and vegetables? If you're eating bananas and oranges and apples and strawberries and watermelons and squash and cucumbers, all of these fruits, they require an insect pollinator to cause the plant to set fruit. So as you can see, studying community ecology is very important. And like all the other hierarchies of life, biological communities also have emergent properties. And in fact, in some cases, they can be really hard to understand because there's so many different types of interactions and trying to figure them out and tease them apart can be, uh, it can be really difficult. Let's go up to our next level in the hierarchy of life. These are ecosystems. So communities reside within an ecosystem. And in many cases, they're very similar, but what an ecosystem ecologist studies are the flows of nutrients and energy. So ecosystems ecology studies not only the living component of an ecosystem, but also how that living component interacts with the abiotic environment. Now, bio means alive, a means without. So if I say abiotic, I mean the non-living or without life. So think energy and nutrients, water. That would be the abiotic environment. And so this is studying nutrient flows. And this is very important. We've added in a lot of fertilizer to our world. It's this Haber-Bosch process where we actually crack nitrogen out of the atmosphere and we use it to make fertilizers pretty cheap. As a result, humans have like doubled the amount of nitrogen into the world. And nitrogen, as you know, is a good fertilizer for plants. But it also has really large negative effects on aquatic and marine ecosystems because it can cause large algal blooms and dead zones. Pretty crazy. So humans have greatly altered a lot of the nutrient cycles on the planet, especially the nitrogen cycle. And we've also affected the carbon cycle. We're pumping in billions of tons of carbon dioxide every year into the atmosphere. And that's causing acid rain and lowering the pH of the oceans. So we're affecting the nitrogen cycle, we're affecting the carbon cycle. And as you might've guessed, we're also affecting water cycles as well. So we want to understand what are the effects of dams on rivers. I mean, we create these large lakes behind dams that has enormous impacts on the stream fish that live there as well. And of course, we all know by now that humans are greatly altering the climate. And by altering the climate, we're going to affect every ecosystem on this planet. It's crazy. I know. We're affecting the world from the top to the bottom, from the poles to the deepest parts of the ocean. And also we're affecting the tops of mountains and every ecosystem in between. It's amazing the effect we're having. Now we can go up in the hierarchy a little bit more here. Ecosystems that are similar, think a desert or a rainforest or coral reefs. If they're in different parts of the world, they might have very different species, but they may function fairly similarly. So a rainforest is gonna have lots of rain, growth year round, and high species diversity. So if you're in the Amazon or the Congo, you might have completely different species, but 
you're a similar ecosystem, we would lump those similar ecosystems together into a biome. So we have different biomes on the earth that include deserts, rainforests, deciduous forests, the northern boreal forest. Those would be biomes. And then all the biomes come together and form the entire biosphere. And all the biomes in the biosphere are connected. So what happens in one affects the other. So they are not isolated entities. So there you have it. There is a hierarchy of life that starts out at our basic fundamental building blocks of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And they form atoms, and that's what we see in our world. That is the foundation of our universe. And as we go up in this hierarchy to atoms, molecules, cells, living organisms, populations, communities, ecosystems, biomes, and the entire biosphere, we have increasing complexity and we have emergent properties that arise with each level of complexity. And don't forget this one. Life is a result of emergent properties. You're greater than the sum of your parts. Well, that makes me feel good about myself, right? I can know everything there is to know about protons, neutrons, and electrons. And based on that, you can make hardly any predictions about me, or you, or your dog, or your cat. Or the bird flying outside. I'm watching hummingbirds right now coming into a feeder. Okay. Well, that's been another episode of Tom SciCast.